Amen. Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4 this evening. And as you're turning, just want to say thank you so much for your hospitality and your kindness to us. We've been staying uh, for about two and a half weeks over in the Mission House and has been a great blessing. Uh, for one, to have somewhere to stay has been a great blessing, but then specifically to be here and uh, the Mission's House and the uh, uh, knowing about that has proceeded for uh, quite some time. We were told a while ago, there's a church in uh, the Seattle area, and if you ever go there and there's any way you can stay in that house, you've got to do it. It's just amazing. And uh, we didn't really know exactly where it was and didn't realize that it was exactly here. And uh, so when we started getting ready to come, I started trying to figure out uh, where is this place that is so amazing, and maybe we can uh, find a way to stay there for a night. And so then someone said, it's Pastor Bob Reno, who you need to get a hold of. I said, all right. And so uh, we called, and you know, I really figured Pastor Reno would say, I've never heard of you, and so really, you know, I mean, I don't know why you're calling to try to stay in our immaculate, amazing house, and, um, but uh, your pastor is so gracious, and I'm so thankful for that, and uh, have greatly enjoyed getting to know each other. Um, I already was kind of amazed, I see online all the time, or on Facebook and things, where uh, all the cooking, and everybody I talk to talks about how amazing of a cook he is, he obviously knows how to put together an amazing house, and uh, then uh, the beard, I mean, that's incredible. And then he comes rolling in on a Harley. I was like, man, this is awesome. And uh, I mean, I'm trying to talk my wife into letting me have any kind of a, a something with two wheels. And so far, it's not going real well. And, uh, but I am just so thankful for the opportunity to be there. And then we walk in and Pastor Reno said, oh, I'll show you around. And we walked in the house and he said all these different things. And then kind of at the end and flippantly, he said, oh, and the lights, uh, you know, I don't remember how he said it, but basically you talk to him. And he left. And I went, what do we say? And we were in a hurry. We had to run somewhere. So we ran, and we came back. And so uh, I told Vanessa, we got in the car. I said, I guess, look up, what are we supposed to say? I mean, just like, hey, lights, you know? I don't know. I don't know how this works. And I'm a little behind the times, you can tell. And uh, so we got in the car. We looked it all up. We got back. And so uh, then we had read that you could do all these different colors. And so I started naming every color I could. And I'm like, you know, hey, Google, make the lights blue. And they're blue. And I said, hey, Google, make the lights green. And they turn green. And so I'm standing there naming every color, and it's awesome. And uh, my wife said, how long are you going to do that? <laughs> I was like, till I run out of colors, obviously. And then uh, the other day, Pastor Reno said, you know, there's like 300 million colors or something like that you can do. And I did not get to all of them. But uh, he also said flippantly the other day, just kind of in passing, he said, you know, sometimes we go in and people have made all the lights that are over the table, all four of them are different colors. So my family left and I was there all by myself to work. And I thought, I've got to figure this out. And so I started playing with it, and before long, I would get, like, two lights different colors. So I knew I was on the right track, and every time I would get to the, the second or the third light, it depended, usually the third light, and uh, sometimes even the fourth, and I would tell it, you know, make it this color. And Google would say, making four lights, and she would turn them all that color, and I still didn't make it. And uh, I probably stood there for 10 minutes trying to get those four lights all different colors, and I finally made it, and I thought, this is awesome. So I took a picture, and I sent it to my wife, and I said, show the kids uh, what I've done. And I knew they were going to come home and have to figure out how to be as cool as dad and get the lights all different colors. And she said both of them looked up and went, cool. And so it was very disappointing that uh, I wasn't a little bit more on like the cool dad of at least the week chart or something, but, uh, but it has been a great blessing to be there. We've greatly enjoyed the house, 
And uh, just really in, in very much of seriousness, just want to say thank you um, as a church for your investment. And uh, really until um, just being on the side of traveling all the time and things like that, we love it. We, uh, people have said, what's the most difficult thing about deputation? Uh, there really hasn't been. We absolutely love it. We have uh, loved coming into churches and being able to see different ministries and we're stealing ideas everywhere, which is a wonderful benefit of it. And uh, so we have greatly enjoyed uh, this time. It's been a very refreshing time for our family. But uh, in the midst of all of that, to be able to stay somewhere, um, and, and as much as we've been traveling here over the last several months, um, being in a place like that home, it really is a blessing. And so thank you as a church for your investment and uh, putting in all the labor that you do. It makes such a great difference. And uh, we just want you to know how grateful we really are. So thank you for uh, really investing in our lives before you ever knew us by working so hard to put that home together. And that really is a blessing. All right, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Oh, and before we jump in, let me just say, too, it is a blessing to have my mother-in-law with us tonight, and uh, my wife's mom is here, so thank you for uh, coming tonight. Second Timothy chapter 4, a passage that probably all of us are very familiar with, and uh, we find here uh, Paul is writing to his son in the faith, Timothy, some of really his final words, or down to his final words that he's going to pen anyway in this life. And uh, so he's, he is getting across a point that is obviously very uh, dear to the heart of the Apostle Paul. And he says this, do you typically see him when you read? Or does it matter? Okay, we'll stay, stay seated then. Second uh, Timothy chapter four, verse number one, he says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. Father, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts tonight. I pray that you would uh, just be with my thoughts. I pray that you would make them clear and uh, help me to express them clearly. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, really anything that you want said tonight, that you would like to say to your folks, uh, your people, I pray that you would speak through me in that manner. And Lord, anything you don't want said tonight that I would have in my notes or intention of saying, Lord, I pray that you would strike that from my mind uh, even as I preach. I pray that you would um, really just speak to your people through me tonight. We love you, we thank you, and in Jesus' name I pray, amen. The year was 1996, and uh, my mom came in, she gathered my sister and I, and we went out and got in the van and went into downtown Kansas City, and uh, as typical for like a parade or something like that, uh, the streets were blocked off in a, a certain area, and once we walked into that area, there were people lining the streets and just kind of open street down the middle, and so uh, we came in and dutifully found our place. And of course, as children, we were excited because we knew that with a parade comes lots of candy. And uh, that's always an exciting thing. And so uh, we were waiting. And, and I kind of remember it just not, I don't know if there was any candy or not. And, um, but if there was, it wasn't exactly as much as maybe would be a typical parade. And so that was kind of disappointing. And 11 years old, uh, really, you go home and 
you think, you know, there wasn't as much candy as normal. It wasn't as exciting of a parade, therefore, as normal. And uh, really, I, it was kind of a waste of the day, to be honest. But now, as I stand a few years later and I look back, I'm glad that we were able to be there. And uh, it was kind of a neat thing to be able to say that we attended that day. If you remember, 1996 was the year that in Atlanta, Georgia, the Centennial Olympic Games, Summer Games, were hosted. And the United States of America, of course, was hosting those games. And uh, they spent $1.7 billion on the opening ceremony. And I think of a number like that now, and I think, you know how many churches we could plant and missionaries we could send with $1.7 billion. But that's all right. They spent all of that on that a couple of days of opening ceremony. And of course, the highlight of that ceremony would be somebody coming up with an Olympic torch and they would take that flame and they would put it to the final torch, the big torch, and that would signal the beginning of the Olympic Games. And that would have happen and, uh, at the end of that, that travel, but that travel of that flame had begun in, I believe it was March and it ended in June, and uh, the traveling of that flame was for uh, quite a few weeks, and they would pass a torch from, really not pass, they would pass the flame from one torch to another, and all across our nation there were people that had an opportunity just for a short time to carry the Olympic flame in that torch. And so somebody... Uh, Every now and then there would maybe be like a runner or someone like that, and they might carry the flame for a few miles. There were some people, if I remember correctly, maybe would be in a wheelchair and have somebody pushing them, and they would be representing some person or people, and uh, they would hold that flame, and it might only be a handful of feet, really, that they would have the flame, but it would pass from one person to another and work its way all the way across our country to Atlanta for those opening, opening games. And so... I began to think about that, and I began to think back on it, and I thought, I wonder what those torches are worth today. And today, 2022, the Olympic torches that were used in uh, 1996 are worth about $1,500 a piece. And I thought, now that seems kind of strange to me. Uh, I suppose to somebody they're worth that, but to me, it's just a mantelpiece. It's something just to set somewhere and say, you know what that is? It's an Olympic torch. It was used in 1996, and people go, Wow. And so to me, that's not worth $1,500, but uh, to somebody, apparently it is. And then I found out that there were 17,000 torches made, and that means if you could gather all those Olympic torches back together, you'd have about $25.5 million worth of torches, and suddenly I was interested. I thought, how could we find all of those torches again? And uh, that would be quite exciting. And so uh, the, the thought I had, though, is this. Why is it that those torches to some people are worth so much when to me they're worth so little? And I began to think really about the moving of that flame across our nation and as they were getting ready for those games and all the work and all the preparation, all the planning that went into that. And, and I began to think through that and I thought what a picture that is really of the Christian life. What a picture of the reality that we have such a short time, and yet there is a flame that God has given, and there's a, a torch that can be born, there's a responsibility to go into our culture with the gospel, and we have such a short time to bear the flame. We have such a short time in this life to be able to do anything really for the cause of Christ, and, and then that flame will be passed on. And as Paul is writing to Timothy here, in essence he's saying to him, Timothy, it's time for you to carry the torch. Timothy, the torch is passing from me, in many respects, to you. 
And Timothy, it's time for you to be the one to bear the torch now. It's time for you to uh, really stand on your own two feet. He says things to him through the two books of Timothy, like, Timothy, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And, and, And Timothy, don't let him look down on your youth, but rather go forward, go lead is what he's saying to him. And and Timothy, be a leader in the early church. Don't worry about some of the things you have a tendency to worry about. Go forward and go do something for God. Timothy, you have just one lifetime to use. And now as the apostle Paul is passing off of the scene, in essence, he's saying, Timothy, my time is done. My race is run. I am finished. I'm going on to heaven. And now it's passing to you. I thought about the time of this life as we carry the torch of responsibility to get the gospel into the culture and the world around us. And what a joy and what a privilege that is. Just as it was a great privilege for every person who carried that Olympic flame for those short periods. And yet as I think back, the torches themselves are of such little value to me and of such great value to others. And the reality is we look at the world around us and if we live a life that is sold out for Christ, to much of the world around us, they would look at that and say, there's really no value. What's the value of a life like that? You could have done more. You could have made more money. You could have left your children maybe in a better situation. I mean, why is it that you sacrificed to be in church on a Sunday morning and a Sunday night and a Wednesday night? And why is it that you've sacrificed to give everything for the cause of Christ? And why is it that you gave so much and invested so much into missionaries and people you didn't even know to go places in the world that you've never even been? And why is it that you did so much and you gave so much? Why is it that that is of any value? the world would look at the Christian who has sold out for God and say there's really very little value in that. But the reality is we're carrying that torch, we are carrying that flame of responsibility, that flame of the gospel, and just like the Olympic torch or the Olympic flame, we are heading to a glorious ceremony. But our ceremony will be far greater than $1.7 billion could ever produce, amen? Amen. And one day when we stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, there is going to be one who sees great value in the life that was sold out for him. And so the reality is this morning, that is, or this evening as we come, that we come to a place and we stand in a time that is in desperate need of the gospel and the culture which we live. We stand in a time when we have the opportunity and even the responsibility to carry the gospel into that culture, and yet we stand in the midst of a world that says there's really no value, there's really no interest in that. Why would you give everything to just carry the gospel? Paul writes to Timothy. He says, Timothy, I'm going off of the scene. Until now, Timothy has always had his mentor. He's always had, in essence, his pastor. And I'm thankful for those who have invested in my life. I'm thankful for those who have given much to be a help and a blessing to me. And and I have a pastor who has uh, greatly served the Lord and been faithful to him. And I'm thankful for that. And, And even still, I can call him and I'll call him and say, how do you handle this? Or how have you done that? Or uh, what would you do in this situation of ministry? And he always has just the answer. And then I called him a couple of years ago, and I said, what do you do with COVID? And he said, I don't have any clue. I don't know what to do with it. And uh, he didn't have the answer. And, and the reality, though, is that it's a blessing to have someone ahead of you to be able to call and say, how do you handle this? Timothy's always had it. He's always been able to send a messenger or to write a letter or maybe himself to go to the Apostle Paul and say, Paul, what about this situation? And Paul's helped him with things. Timothy, watch out for Alexander. He's done me much harm. He's going to do you some harm as well. 
He's helped him in how to handle situations of ministry. But now he's saying to him, Timothy, my time's done. I'm passing off of the scene. Timothy is his son in the faith, and others are now going to start coming to Timothy and saying, Timothy, we have this situation. How would Paul have handled that? And Timothy now must become a leader in the early church. So Paul, in many respects, writes to him in this final chapter, and he's saying to him, Timothy, I'm passing the torch. The torch of responsibility is coming to you. You must carry it. You must be faithful. The day would come when Timothy would pass off of the scene and he would pass the torch to somebody else. And the day would come when they would pass off of the scene and it would come to the next generation. And from generation to generation, the gospel has been passed. And what a privilege for us to stand in 2022 in the United States of America. And certainly our nation has some concerning problems. But the the truth is we still have a nation that has freedom. We still have a nation where we can carry the gospel primarily without fear. We still have a nation where we can boldly go and confront our culture with the gospel message. We still have a nation where we can knock on doors and tell people about Jesus. We still have wonderful freedoms that many would love to have in this world today. And so we find ourselves with that torch having been passed to us. I see, first of all tonight, the torch that we carry, it's the torch of responsibility. It is the flame of the gospel which must go forward. But then I think about this. Paul writes to Timothy and he's saying to him, Timothy, there's a torch for you to carry. But secondly, he's saying to him, Timothy, there's some turbulence in our culture. He says to him, verse number three, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They shall turn away their ears from the truth, shall be turned unto fables. You know, it's possible Timothy read this and he said, wow, I'm really glad I don't live in that day. I mean, I'm glad I don't live in a time like that where people are not interested in truth. I'm really glad I live in Ephesus in the year, whatever it was, first century, and uh, I'm really glad that I'm here and not there someday. But I don't think that's what Timothy said. I think for two reasons. Number one, the people of the first century, when they read the definitions like this, generally they walked away with the idea, well, Jesus must be coming in our lifetime because that's how it is today. And so I think that would have been the idea, but also because of this, and don't turn there now, but if you were to go back to Acts chapter 19, you would find in Acts 19 the planting of the church in Ephesus as Paul comes into Ephesus with a team of people that are going to help him plant the church, and uh, they come in and it's an exciting time. They start going through the city with the gospel. People are being saved. They're being reached. Their lives start to be changed. They're becoming not just uh, new believers, but now disciples of Christ. And they're finding that their relationship with Jesus is really all that they need. And so all these people, they are idol worshipers. They have little metal idols, primarily silver, back home. And so they start going home, and they take their idols that represent their gods, and they're saying, you know, we don't really need this anymore because this isn't who we worship anymore. So they're taking their idols, and they're throwing them out, and they're getting rid of all that old idolatry, and they're turning to Christ alone and a relationship with him alone, and they're saying, we're finding that that is all the fulfillment, and that's everything we need. It's all wrapped up in Jesus. And man, wouldn't that be an exciting time to be a part of a church that is uh, having this kind of an impact, a whole city is starting to be changed to the point that other people started noticing. And some of the people that noticed, you might remember them, they are a group of people, they were called the silversmiths. They were the ones who made all those little silver idols. 
And the silversmiths were very wealthy. And I know we don't have this problem in the United States, praise the Lord for that. But in their time, there were people that were very greedy and they liked money and they would do things for money they ought not do. <laughs> Aren't you glad we don't have that? But not only were the silversmiths very wealthy people, they were also very powerfully, uh, politically powerful people. As they have excavated the ruins of Ephesus, they found plaques and different things that speak to the political power of the silversmiths. So these were very politically connected, very powerful people. And again, I'm glad it's not in America, but in their day, some of these people really liked political power, and they would do all kinds of things they shouldn't do to get power or to maintain their power. <laughs> so they were rich, and they were powerful. And all of a sudden, this group of people started coming into their town and started winning people to Christ. And all of a sudden, those people that were being won to Christ started getting rid of their idols. And all of a sudden, the silversmith said, whoa, whoa, hold on now. Wait a minute. If this keeps happening, and if people keep getting saved, and they keep turning to a relationship with this Jesus, and they keep not worshiping these idols, and they're going to get rid of those, and they're not going to buy them anymore, we're going to lose our money. And not only are we going to lose our money, but if we lose our money, we're also going to lose our political power. So you remember what they did? They went out into the streets and they began to say things that really were not true. And they began to talk about how these people came here to ruin our city in essence. And, and really, they, uh, they, don't, they don't care about you. They, don't love, they hate you. They're haters. And uh, who knows what other kind of things they were actually saying in the uh, conversation. And they got the whole city in an uproar and riled up. And before long, they started chanting about how Diana is the goddess of the Ephesians. Diana is the goddess of the Ephesians. And before long, they packed out the Colosseum at that time, the second largest Colosseum in the world, second only to Rome, and they packed it out completely with people that were chanting until eventually uh, they had to come to them and say, hey, this is an uproar. Even Rome is going to hear about this. We're going to be in trouble. And they tried to get them all to settle down, and it was all a bunch of people that got all riled up because a few silversmiths said, we don't want to lose our money, but we don't want to lose our power. And I wonder if Timothy read this. And he said, Paul's telling us, the time's going to come, they will not endure sound doctrine. That means there's going to be a rejection of doctrine or a rejection of truth. And I wonder if Timothy didn't go, you know, some of the things they were saying on that day, they weren't really true. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't factual. They were just trying to get everybody riled up and it worked. And the whole city said, we really don't care what's true. We really just care what we're hearing and what our emotions say. Not only is there a rejection of doctrine, but it says this is going to be after their own lust. That means they'll reject doctrine or truth and they will only rece receive delight. Whatever makes me happy is all I want to hear. I wonder if Timothy didn't say, well, that's exactly what was happening in our city. Not really that long ago, uh, as he would be left there as the pastor. And then Paul says to him, not only are they going to have these teachers, but he says they are going to heap these teachers to themselves. That would be the reassurance of duplicity. In other words, if everybody's saying the same thing, then whatever everybody is saying must be what's true. So if I can be in an environment where everybody is saying what I want to hear, then I am verifying that I am right and what I think is actually true. And is that not exactly what we see in the United States of America today? We live in a nation that really, by and large, has rejected truth. 
said, we're not really interested in what's true. As a matter of fact, we live in a nation today where it's a fairly big statement in most settings to be able to say that you can biologically define a male and a female. That shouldn't be a very big statement, but in our country it is. We've rejected truth to positions and places that are are really kind of appalling and hard to believe that we could even be there, and yet it's exactly where we find ourselves. We've rejected truth, and, and then we have the reception of delight and the reassurance of duplicity, the point where we say, hey, and as a culture we have said, one of the most hateful things you can do, it's not just to disagree with me, actually one of the most hateful things you can do is to not approve of me. You see, there used to be a time people wanted us to agree. Now they don't just want us to say, uh, to even just agree that, okay, whatever you want to believe is fine. No, 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 you need to approve of it. You need to be on board with it. And if you're not, then you're hateful. So we live in a generation or a culture now that has a rejection of doctrine, reception of delight, and then we think about the reassurance of duplicity. They want to hear the same thing all the time. Anything that is contrary to whatever they want to hear becomes a problem, and you really, you can see a microcosm of this in the news because you can go today and you can turn on multiple news channels in our country today, and you can find people that are saying the exact same thing and of a left-leaning type of an idea, you can go and turn on on CNN and all these other stations, and you can find everybody saying the exact same thing everywhere. And people will go, and they're not really interested in truth, they're interested in ratings, and people will come listen because that's what they want to hear, and they'll say, look, everyone's saying the same thing. It must be true. But wait a minute, hopefully I don't offend here, but the same thing can be true on the conservative side. (laughs) Sometimes What's being said, it's not so much because it's true, it's because they're interested in ratings and because they can get people to turn on their channels and listen to them all say the same thing. And really what happens is if we're not careful, we can get caught up in this very thing. I just want to hear what I want to hear rather than looking for truth. I'm not saying we shouldn't know what's going on in our culture today. What I am saying is rather than comparing it to Fox News, we need to bring it back to this book primarily. And we need to come back to the Word of God and say, what are the Bible answers? What is the truth that confronts our culture? How do we come back to the Word of God and say, uh, this is what we need to have to answer the very culture in which we live? And if we get away from the Bible in any other direction, any news, whatever's out there, and all of a sudden it becomes about what do I think or what do I want to hear, rather than what does God say that confronts our culture and helps us win our culture to Christ, then we've gotten out of line, we've gotten in the wrong place, and we need to come back in line and say, hold on, let's come back to this book and let this be the book that guides us. And so we find here that there is a a problem within the culture. And Paul writes and he says, Timothy, there's a torch that you must bear. There's a torch that you have to carry. You have the responsibility of getting the gospel into your culture, Timothy. There's a torch for you to carry. But not only that, there's turbulence in your culture. All right, Paul. We have to get the gospel into our culture. We get it. There's turbulence, though, in our culture, and we live in the midst of a generation that says we're not interested in truth. And the only thing we have is truth, the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word of God. So how do we go into a culture that says we don't want truth with only armed with truth and impact a culture? And maybe you're like me, and you look at the United States of America, and you say, Lord, I understand the hope of America is not in the White House, no matter who's there. We get that tonight. 
But how from Puyallup, Washington? How from Kansas City, Missouri? Places with a lot of people. There's a lot of opportunity. But how do we impact a nation the size of the United States of America fast enough to really make a difference and keep it from turning? How do we really make a difference in a place like this? I mean, it's incredible. You can go out at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and get stuck in a traffic jam here. It's amazing. I mean, I don't think people ever actually go home. I think they just go drive around all day, and that's all they do. And uh, it, it's incredible. I don't know how you can have so many people on the roads all the time. Uh, the other day, we were like, we're going to go down to Seattle. We went to go down to Seattle. We looked it up on the uh, Google Maps, and we thought, well, by the time we get down there, because it was backed up more than normal. It said, traffic is slower than normal. I said, well, that's not good, because normal's not real fast. And so we said, well, by the time we get down to Seattle, it's going to be time to turn around and come back, and we're already going to be caught in traffic. It's not going to work. So we went and ate Thai food instead. And um, so, so we're looking at it and thinking there's just people everywhere. So how does a church like Berean Baptist Church go win all those people to Christ? How do you have a, a, an impact in a place like this that changes the culture to the place where people start saying, whoa, whoa, hold on. If we don't, if we don't stop Berean Baptist Church, then in reality, they're going to completely change the whole culture of Piala. And how do we go start a church in Kansas City, a place with 350,000 people just in that part, five and a half million people in the greater Kansas City area? How do we go there and have any kind of an impact that people say, uh, and, and it's not that we're worried about people, but that somebody might honestly look at it and say, if we don't slow that church down, they're going to change the culture here. How does it happen? Paul's writing to Timothy. Timothy is in the second largest city in the known world at this time in Ephesus. 250,000 people, by our standards, that's not a large city. Uh, I mean, it's good size, but not massive. But by their standards, remember, there's no cars, there's no planes. Uh, for them to cross a city of 250,000 people by foot, it's an incredible city. Uh, they have the second largest coliseum, second only to Rome. The second largest city in the known world, second only to Rome. It's an incredible place that Timothy is ministering. And Paul writes to him and he says, Timothy, you have a torch to carry. You've got to get into your culture with the gospel. Timothy, not only do you have a torch to carry, but there's turbulence in your culture. They don't want the truth, and the only thing you have is the truth. All right, Paul, so what do we do? Do we go get a rock band and put it on the stage and try to entertain people so we can build a crowd so we can give them the gospel? How do we really impact a culture like that? And by the way, that's what our culture and, and many in our Christian circles are trying to figure out, and that's where a lot of that comes from. So how do we do it? How do we impact the culture? Paul gives the answer at the very beginning. He says, I charge thee, verse number one, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead. Notice what he says, I charge thee before Jesus. In other words, hey, Timothy, the witness of this charge is Jesus. He's the witness. Then he says, who shall judge the quick and the dead? Jesus is both the witness and he's the judge, Timothy. He's the one who will judge the whole world. Jesus, in other words, it's all about him. He's the witness, he's the judge, he's the one who's everything, but not only that, he's also the message. So verse number two, Timothy, here's the answer, preach the word. Timothy, here's how you go impact a culture. Here's how you change a city like Ephesus. Here's how you make it so that the silversmiths say, if we don't stop Ephesus Baptist Church, if we don't figure out how to slow Timothy down and the work that is happening in that place, then they're going to change our culture and they're going to put us out of business. Here's how you impact a culture like that. Go preach the word. 
Timothy, go out into the highways and the byways and preach the word. Go knock on the doors and preach the word. And then on Sunday and Wednesday, get in the pulpit and preach the word. And Timothy, everything you do and everywhere you go, just preach the word. That's the answer, Timothy. And you say, but, but we've done that in America, so how do we change our culture if we keep doing what we've been doing and nothing really different? And the answer is this, I don't know, because it's not about us. It's not our idea. It's not us saying, hey, we figured out some new thing. Here's what it's about. It's about the God of heaven saying, I'm choosing to move and work through men in such a manner that when they go preach the word and women in such a manner, when they go into their culture with the gospel, that I'm just going to to move amongst them in a way that nobody can explain. And then when revival comes, we don't walk around going, (laughs) well, we kind of figured out a new strategy. He said, Timothy, you don't need a new strategy. Timothy, here's what you need is the power of God working through you as you preach the word. So Timothy, it may be you don't change every culture. Briam Baptist Church, it may be that nobody ever looks and says, wow, I mean, and I think this is a church doing some great things already, but it may be they don't say, wow, look at them, they're running uh, 2,000 people. Who knows? What's the difference? It's just faithfulness and whether or not God decides to do it. Because what it does is it takes it out of our hands. It's not us coming up with a plan or a strategy or a way of entertaining or saying, oh, look what we figured out. Rather, it is us preaching the word and God being the one who decides how to bless it. And sometimes he does things we step back and say, wow, it's marvelous in our eyes. I don't know what happened. Sometimes... Somebody goes to a place and they struggle and they labor and they work and years into it, they see their first convert. And you look at some of those people and they're people we know in history now. And we look at them and say, what an incredible missionary God greatly used them. Adoniram Judson, what an incredible man of God. But I wonder if four or five years in, I wonder if David Livingston, when Some loved ones died and he buried family members and wives. If there weren't days, they said, I wonder if God's ever going to do something. Folks, we look at our country. If you see it like I see it, I have some concerns. (laughs) There are some things I look at and I think, if that carries out very far, we're going to be in a lot of trouble real fast. So what do we do? I say the answer is, preach the word. We just keep going. We just keep knocking on doors. We just keep being faithful. We just keep giving to missions. What a time for your church. Revival meeting next week, a chance to get refired, refueled, and go in once again on the spiritual side of things. What an opportunity. The next month is your missions month in October and have missionaries in and all that. A few weeks later, the opportunity to give to missions again. You know what all that is? It's all just helping people to go preach the word. All it is is saying, hey, we're bearing our torch. And then all it is this week is saying, what does it look like for you to carry your torch? For the Schaefer family carrying our torch right now looks like going and planting Fountain City Baptist Church in Kansas City, Missouri. That's us. That's our torch. 
That's what God has called us to do. That's his plan for us. And we don't know whose door we're going to knock on. We don't know who the names of the people are that we're supposed to reach. But we know there's people there that need the gospel. They need somebody to come and give it to them. And and so we're not planning on going in with some brand new strategy nobody ever thought of. We're just going to take the Bible and go preach the word. And so when we get there, we don't know who those people are, but we know they're there. And who are they around here? Who knows? But just like you at one time needed somebody to preach the word to you, they're here. So God's plan for you is not to go to Kansas City and plant Fountain City Baptist Church. In fact, if God calls you to Kansas City to plant a church, name it something else at least, amen? (laughs) So the question is this, what what does it look like for you this week to carry your torch? Who is it you need to get the gospel to? Who's that person that God could put on your mind right now and say, that's who this week or this next month, you need to get the gospel to that person. Start praying for them. Start looking for opportunities. Start developing opportunities to get the gospel to them. It might be as simple as baking a plate of cookies and walking across the street to a neighbor and handing them a track and saying, hey, uh, this is just an invitation to our church. We just want you to know how much we'd love to have you. And, and I know we've invited you before, but we just want you to know we'd just love to have you come by. Might be as simple as just going and talking to somebody. Might be as difficult, I think maybe the most difficult spot I know of is trying to witness to lost family members that you know are going to be upset about it. <laughs> Remember my dad writing my aunt a letter and and just one more time trying to give her the gospel. Thankfully, she's saved now, but uh, uh, for years she was angry with it. It might be this week that you just need to sit down and prayerfully pen a letter. Or one more time, go talk to that loved one, that family member, and say, hey, I just need to take one more opportunity to try to get the gospel to them. It may be simple, it may be hard. I don't know what it is for you. The question really only you can answer between you and God. The question is this, are you set on fire from heaven, giving every ounce of energy you have to run towards that finish line, that final destination, that glorious celebration, when we give an account to the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Are you giving everything to carry your torch? And then what does it look like for you to carry your torch this week? Father, we love you. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for just the opportunity that we have to be in church this evening. Lord, I pray that you would take your word and apply it to every heart. Would you help us to carry the torch faithfully? Lord, I don't know what it looks like for each one. Only really you can work in hearts to, to reveal that. But would you help us to go and would you help us to get the gospel to those around us who so desperately need it? And then, Lord, to send others who can go to places we can't and take the gospel to reach people there. Lord, we love you. I thank you for this church. I thank you for the heart of this church. Lord, I pray that if there's someone tonight who just needs to pick up their torch and go forward once again, would you help them to press on for the cause of Christ? We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Simple invitation tonight. Maybe you'd say, preacher, God spoke to my heart this evening. And there's an area where I recognize what it looks like to carry my torch. There's somebody God's put on my heart or some opportunity, maybe it's, I just need to show up for soul winning on Saturday and I, I need to get going again in soul winning. But you'd say, I recognize a decision I need to make to faithfully carry my torch. Anybody like that, you'd slip your hand up. There's an area that God's spoken to my heart. Amen. All around the room. Amen. Would you come to an altar tonight?
and just settle and seal that decision with the Lord. Let's stand together, heads about, eyes are closed. You